Katrina, do you know about the picks? I do. I have like I have like four lined up. If that's too many, I can reduce it. Not at all. Four's Bring good. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, Let's... F- four picks from you is probably about equal to one pick from David. So. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash new relic. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com slash ruby. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 69 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello, hello. David Brady. Hey, everybody. In honor of the Mass Effect 3 ending, I'm going to spend the last 10 minutes of this podcast showing you the ultimate way to repair your car. Josh Susser. (laughs) Here I come to save the day. (laughs) Yay. James Edward Gray. According to Twitter, I am the laughing bird of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Who is the drinking bird? That would be you. Yeah. Is that your answer on Jeopardy? <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Katrina Owen. Hello. Um, since you're new to the show, do you want to introduce yourself really quick? Sure. Um, I've been doing Ruby for about two years. Uh, I do this at a small product development company in Oslo, Norway. Oh. What, what did you do before Ruby? Do we have to talk about this? No. <laughs> oh, good. It's shameful. She, she lives in the land of the chosen frozen. <laughs> and she doesn't want to talk about what she did before Ruby. So I, I actually, I can uh, reveal that I wrote PHP for a fashion company in Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah, that's it. Well, Way to find a pain point right off the bat, Josh. I would say it was coming out of the cold, but you moved to Norway. <laughs> yeah, I've been back and forth a few times. So, so, sorry about that, Katrina. Welcome to the show. How are you today? <laughs> Thank you. I'm fine. How are you? Uh, yeah, it, it, aren't, aren't we supposed to start the show off going, so did you guys do anything interesting this week? <laughs> <laughs> the enthusiasm is way too high. That's right. No. How about you? Not really. We do that every week. We just edit it out. (laughs) (laughs) That's the pretty show. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the dirty little secret of Ruby Rogues is we actually record seven hours of show. (laughs) It just takes us six hours to get revved up, right? (laughs) Five of them is just discussing Firefly. Well, three and a half of them them are the parts of my picks that don't make it into the episode. (laughs) <laughs> That's true. So, 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 Katrina, have you listened to the show before, and do you know what you're in for? Yes, I have listened to it. Now, I don't know what I'm in for because uh, that is probably new. Okay. Right now, she's fine trying to find a way to get off this call. So, so J- James, since this is your fault, why don't you uh, set us up for the conversation? This is my fault. Um, I had built up like a long list of videos I meant to watch someday and I've just been slowly working my way down that list as I had time and recently I I can't remember who recommended it to me but I watched Katrina's uh, Scottish Ruby Conf video of her therapeutic refactoring talk 
and uh, it is an absolutely excellent talk. And so I came back and I'm like, hey guys, you gotta see this talk. And uh, asked Katrina to come on the show. So, and I think you've given that talk, is it twice now, Katrina? It's three times now. Three times now, so. Yeah, you've given it at multiple conferences, and I'll say that usually I'm pretty against repeating talks, but I'd make an exception for this one because it's great and everybody should see it. So wow. it's a it's a good talk. Um, it's, so, it's like the oh. it's like the movie Serenity. It's actually better the second time you watch it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so uh, tell us, Katrina, what made you want to do this talk? Why did you do it? Um, I refactor a lot. Uh, and I think that a lot of people don't refactor enough. Uh, so that's one thing. Also, I was at a Ruby, uh, just a meetup locally here in Oslo, and kind of just pulled up my editor and started showing people little refactorings that I had done sort of before, after, just informally. And um, they were really into it. So I figured I could do something uh, kind of more structured around that. You know, so I'll confess, how I watch videos is this. I, I open them up in my browser, I turn them on, and then I tend to just go do something else. And uh, I kind of listening to them, and, and basically it's either you hook me or you don't, you know. And, and if you do, I'll, I'll go back and, and just really get into it. And uh, at the beginning of the talk, it's kind of odd, you know. You're kind of telling this story, and I'm like, wow, this is strange. What is this? And then uh, you, you really start to get into it, and and uh, I think you had me at, at um, the word method object or something like that, you know. But uh, and then I, I really start to pay attention to what you're doing, and and went back home and watched the whole thing. And it's very clever. You do it as a story. It's um, you know this this narrative. Uh, and what made you do it like that? Um, the first thing was that I really needed a way to pull people in um, because it's it's kind of hard to follow but, or technically it, there's a lot of potential for overwhelm um, at which point people go off and uh, check their emails and Twitter and whatever. So I needed to find a way to be able to break it up and only do like seven or eight minutes of code at a time and then I had to find interludes. Um, and I kind of stumbled on the story uh, story approach, uh, especially, so I, I showed um, some people, among them Sandy Metz, an early version of the talk. Uh, and some of the feedback that I got was that there's not enough context. Like I'm, I'm seeing all this code and I see what you're doing, but I don't kind of, I don't have enough information to to know what I'm looking at ahead of time. So I started working on the backstory of refactoring and that turned into this whole intro that you see. That was really cool. Another thing I loved about it is how um, you're basically doing a live coding exercise, but you do not do live coding. You have it all pre-planned in slides and you show we're going from this to this and you make heavy use of like, ellipsis to you know throw out sections that aren't relevant right now where you bold the the line that we need to pay attention to because that's what you're messing with um what made you decide to do that instead of just like typing at the keyboard so uh i'm not brave enough to do live coding 
That's a good reason. <laughs> yep, that's good. And for that, we we all thank you. Yes, S, we do. S slash brave slash foolish slash. <laughs> <laughs> so technically, not really. I saw this amazing talk um, at Scottish RubyConf. Uh, I think it was the day before. So we weren't on the same day, but it was we we both were doing a talk about refactoring. Mine was completely, you know, almost like storyboarded, um, and his was live coded and it was brilliant. Um, Rook R00K, Ben Ornstein from ThoughtBot. It's um, an amazing uh, presentation and it was it was live coded and it went really, really well. Something that I've never actually seen before. Yeah. So it can be done. Yeah, it's possible to get them right. I think it's, I think it's kind of rare. It's really, there's a lot of places to go wrong. Yeah, live coding in talks is very much like flying without a net on the trapeze, and I, I don't like doing that. <laughs> the, 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 the best live coding I've seen done was uh, Nick Callan's talk at RailsConf, oh god, how many years ago, where he, he, show, he basically did test-driven development to create the association proxy structure within Active Record. And and that that was an awesome talk, and I and I despair of the fact that it wasn't recorded. But luckily, we have Katrina's talk recorded, and that's awesome. that so 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 we can talk about that instead. The, when the, when live coding goes right, it's it's trapezing without a net. When it goes wrong, it's parachuting without uh, a parachute. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, and this is the splat operator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So one more awesome thing you did in our talk, and then I'll, I'll try to stop gushing, but that um, if I, I'm like a super big brain research geek and I love to read about how our brain works and stuff like that, and here I am watching your talk, and lo and behold, you go into the why of how we do this refactoring and how it helps our brain and stuff. So what made you throw that in there? So that's why I started uh, refactoring for fun uh, in the first place, is that it, I just realized that it made me feel better. It really, um, whenever I freaked out, I, I kind of stopped thinking well, uh, and refactoring was the one thing that kind of brought me back. Um, I started looking into why that might be. I was reading a book called, I think, Choke. It wasn't a very good book, but it did talk about some of the research around um, working memory and um, other things that have to do with kind of freaking out and, and losing grip of, uh, of uh, your current context. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's why it, it just, um, it's been incredibly helpful. And, and um, I realized that, that there had to be sort of a back reason for that. So I, I have a question about the the therapeutic half of the talk. Sure. And the, uh, so the uh, what are you <clears throat> trying to say, Josh? We all need therapy. Don't answer that. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, Some of yeah, us need a refa good refactoring. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> 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 I, I definitely feel like there are days when my brain could use a refactoring. Um, <clears throat> that I've I've acknowledged for a long time that TDD is one of my uh, stress reduction techniques when I code. It's, you know, if I feel like I'm freaking out too much over what's going on in my code, I write more tests. And that almost always makes me uh, feel more confident about my code and I have more awareness of what's going on. And you know, from a psychological perspective, fear is really about um, uh, you know, a concern that you're not in control. 
So, you know, if you're in control, you don't, you're not afraid of things anymore. The, the thing about refactoring that I find uh, sort of emotionally challenging sometimes is that I have to confront the mess that I made. And, <laughs> and, and like any mess that you create in your life, it can be a little confronting to have to deal with uh, the extent of all that stuff. And it, it's, it's really nice to see um, that, that you can take a, a big mess and break it down into small pieces that are each manageable and, and dig in and attack them one at a time. And then eventually you've cleaned up the mess. But there's this, I think there really is a big psychological hurdle to get over when attacking a big mess, especially if it's one of your own creation. <laughs> So, so, so the, I actually, the I actually really like attach, uh, attacking a big mess, um, sort of differently from from writing code from scratch. In that, I don't have to think about new behavior. All I have to do is make sure that I've covered it in tests well enough, and then I can go, you know, kind of treat it microscopically, do do one tiny transformation at a time, without having to worry about where this code is going, because because the code, the behavior is already where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For, for, for people who haven't watched the talk, yet, I, I think. Yeah. Hi, David. Uh, this is the, uh, the. I'm Lizard. representing those. I'm. I, I'm representing an, an important demographic of our our listeners. Those of us who are going to go watch the talk right after listening to this episode. <laughs> or or push the pause button now and go go. Yeah, I'll be back in thirty minutes. <laughs> yeah. that, so so that I, I like that you started with a code base that was not only a mess but didn't have tests. Well, that's kind of the, that happens a lot, right? With legacy Well, sure. If you, had, if you had tests, it probably wouldn't be that big a mess. I was going to say, are you inferring some kind of correlation between the two? <laughs> so, Katrina, can you tell, please, how you uh, did those tests? Because that, too, is also very clever. And I was going to jump in and say that, that right there, you know, I, I was kind of still working through that in my head through the rest of the talk. And then I was like, the rest of this is so good too. I need to go back and watch it again. So um, they're kind of classical characterization tests in that whatever's there is right. So you just assume that whatever the code is doing is good. So I start out by um, sending in some random input just to see what, um, what the method does with it. And I think I just send them in a stub initially. Um, and then um, every time I run the test, it'll tell me about um, some methods that are missing on the, the input. And then as when I finally get all of those um, messages defined on the stub, then the, the failure actually tells me about what the output should look like. Right. So then you just kind of copy paste that into the assertion. Yeah, I have to say, I really like that use of, of mocks or stubs. I, I, I don't know that I've really seen them used that way, you know, where you're kind of using it to reverse engineer the code or to set things up so that you can, you know, test the result of a particular method. It was really cool. It both allowed her to figure out what it was doing, what methods were being called, what results were being generated, uh, basically treating the code as a black box. And at the same time, she basically uncovers a bug while she's doing the process. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the, w- one, of the, one of the things that, that stood out for me in that process was uh, how great Ruby is for this sort of process. And if you, if you would think about doing that same process or exercise in a language like C++, uh, it would be, I think, uh, much more painful. 
Yeah, there'd be a lot more boilerplate, and you'd have to actually have the correct types and everything. The fact that you can duct type um, pretty much anything and just send in, you know, a naked stub um, makes it a lot easier in Ruby. Yeah, the, yeah, the dynamic nature of the language just makes that sort of uh, code investigation so much easier. So, that, so that was fun to watch that part of it too. Yeah, and and I also I, I really like too that you know you you could immediately get a feel for what was going on in there. Just I mean, just by looking at that stub, you could see okay, well, it's using all of these all of this information or all of these methods um, on whatever's being passed in, which is the target. Right, and one of the things that I didn't do in the talk, but that I did in the real code, is that I defined um, some shared examples that just define that API, um, the expected messages, and then I run that against the stub and against the original object. That's a good trick I just learned yesterday from Sandy Metz, in fact. Um, <laughs> That's where I learned it as well. Yeah, showing how basically, you know, people eventually complain that you mock the uh, mock or stub the um, API, and then what happens is if you change the API, your test still passed, right? Because your mock still has that old uh, API that is passing in, so it still it still passes, whereas you don't get the failure. So if you throw it in a module and then uh, put that module in the test against the uh, against the actual class and also against the test double itself, then you can verify that something will break if the API changes. It's very cool. Well, and as we learned last week, um, that's also why you have uh, acceptance tests is so that it's running all the way through front to back. And then if the API does change and your mock doesn't, then your unit test will still pass. And then you'll see that there's something that doesn't add up in your acceptance test. Yeah, a, a slight little tangent here. The double R uh, 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 test double library uh, uh, from Brian Takeda. Uh, I, I like I like RR or double R. It's uh, it's very terse in its syntax, which I which I find pretty nice. But one of the features that it supports is that it will, um, you know, if you're doing a mock, it will it, you can you can give it a, a you know if you're mocking a particular object and wrapping an object, it will actually make check to make sure that the object itself also understands the method that you're mocking out. So that you you're not just like stubbing something without uh, checking to make sure that the thing that you're stubbing is there too. That's kind of neat. So basically, if you if you try to define a diameter method, but the underlying object doesn't have a diameter method, it, it breaks. Yes. Yeah. That's what you can do. That's cool. Yep. Yeah. One other you can thing also I use the uh, the RSpec Fire uh, extension to RSpec. RSpec Fire. What, what what does that do? Uh, something similar to that. Okay. <laughs> It's like regular RSpec, only it's the next model and it's in color. Plus, it's on <laughs> plus it's on fire. Nice. <laughs> it's on fire. Uh, it, it, it assists it assists in in checking that uh, you're mocking stuff that's actually actually there. Uh, okay. So one other part of the the test writing that I really liked was that, you know, after you had kind of tested the happy path, you didn't just leave it there, but you went through and you looked at all of the different conditionals and things and. Um, you know, made sure that it, you know, all of the different uh, edge cases were kind of handled, you know, all the all the different things that it was trying to compensate for in one way or another, um, up to and including leaving the square brackets in the name. Um, you know, you made sure that you tested all of that so that 
um, if if the API did change for whatever reason, then the test would alert you that something was not the way that it had been before. Yeah, I think it's really important to have really solid characterization tests when you're starting to clean up a mess. Um, and and one of the things. Once you get the happy path, you know a little bit about the code. You know just enough to not be freaked out by reading the code line by line. So you can go back and, and just look at every line of code and say, okay, well, here um, I'm, I'm going to be in one of the lines where G subbing out underscores. So you, you, you know that, and then you have to make sure that you're actually, um, that you have test data that has an underscore in it so that you'll see that happening. Um, and the other thing is is conditionals is that as long as you I mean there there are as many paths through the method as as you have conditionals so you just make sure that every single uh, branch of every conditional is called from a test and then you know you've you've at least gotten through all the paths. Right. Do you do you have a coverage library for that or do you? I just, don't. So you just just discipline. Yeah. Okay. Have you heard about um uh, what is it called uh, Jackal? Uh, no, no, heckle. 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 Yeah. The other, the other crow. Um, <laughs> the, uh, heckle doesn't work in one dot nine. And I heard true. that there's something called metric or metrical or metrically or something like that. But I haven't had time to test it yeah, yet. There's, they've been working on a. Someone's been working on a replacement for heckle that does work. <laughs> for, for for those listening along, uh, heckle was a mutation testing coverage library. So basically, it would go through and purposefully modify a conditional to make it not, you know, do the opposite or something, which should trigger a problem, right? If you have good test coverage. So. Indeed. Yep. So, so, Katrina, you have one other part in the talk that we haven't really uh, talked about where you basically coin a new term that I hope spreads because uh, it's awesome. And uh, in this part of the talk, you basically spend, I don't know, however long, uh, seven minutes or so, uh, just uh, talking about everything that's a pet peeve to me. So I just wanted to know how you read my mind like that. So. <laughs> okay, so the term code junk, I didn't actually coin the, the term. Uh, Carl Manister, a, a developer in, in Southern California, term coined the term probably, uh, I don't know, three or four years ago I heard him mention it. And ever since, it's kind of been riding at the back of my mind. Um, and I keep looking for things that are sort of equivalent to chart junk, um, where it, it adds noise to the code, where, even, you know, if it's there, the code still works right, but, um, but it, it's, it's superfluous and kind of it, ugly. It's like putting parentheses around the conditional expression in your if so for for those uh, uneducated plebes in our audience, um, can we uh, call for a definition of chart junk? Those of us who are not familiar with Edward Tuft. Yes. I, mean, well, I, so, I of course have three of his books, but that's because I could afford the three hundred dollars a copy for them. Well, why don't you define it then? Yeah, wait, 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 wait! You have three of his books, and you still can't pronounce his name. I've never actually heard his heard his name pronounced. So as near as I know, he's not a real person. So, <laughs> well, well, he introduced himself as Edward Tufty. When Edward, I, okay, I was I was yeah. ready for you to say Edvard. Because um, <laughs> if you read his books, the man you know the man's going to have a fussy name. Um, all right, so, so chart junk. 
uh, comes from Edward Tufty, uh, who uh, has just Google him seriously. If you have if you have to do any kind of UI work, he wrote uh, was it the visual display of or of the quali- quantitative display of visual information, um, beautiful yeah, the, data. The, the, the other way around, the visual display of quantitative. Information. There we go. There we go. Um, and I just I just read that off the spine of the book on my shelf next to the book. awesome. Awesome. Um, I oh I I can see one Tufty book. It's actually in the hallway from here. Visual explanations. Is so we've now gotten into the conversation junk part of the. Yes, <laughs> this, is, this is Rogue's junk, um, and uh, basically anytime I'm talking. Anyway, um, so chart junk is anything on a graphical chart which does not contribute to understanding what you are seeing. And so um, if you do pretty borders or if you do background colors or if, you know, that don't actually contribute to uh, the, the quantity of data being displayed, this is chart yeah. junk. So, so it lowers um, the information density of the display. Right. And it, it well, it, it dilutes. Yes, it lowers the information density by diluting it. The, the, the amount of information is still there. Um, but there's more things assaulting your senses visually, I, I guess your visual sense. Um, and so, yeah, it dilutes the quality of it. There's there's one uh, fantastic chart that somebody did of a, a Wall Street uh, ticker chart. And the it was of some, like the vice industry, I think. And it was, uh, it had spiked up and then it had gone down and then it had ticked back up just a little bit. And so the person drawing the chart drew in um, a, a woman's leg in fishnet stockings to, to demonstrate that this is a, a chart about prostitution in New York City. And Tufty spends an entire page blasting the fact that somebody took the time to draw a leg on this chart because it has nothing to do with the actual data. Um, and then because they spent so much time drawing the leg, they didn't actually bother to put like the units on the left-hand side of the chart. So <laughs> you have no idea. Uh, you know, and so the the the, the dark side of legs, obviously. Yeah, in units of leg. Yeah, so um, <laughs> this chart approximates one leg. And um, uh, anyway, the 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 to wrap up. This is one, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm just fired from giving definitions from now on. Uh, if you do a job badly enough, you won't be asked to do it again. Uh, so the dark side of chart junk is this, and that is that um, you can. Anytime you have a chart that does not have enough information, um, a, a, a weaker-willed person than Edward Tufty will always be tempted to tart it up a little bit with some chart junk to make it look like there's more stuff there. And in the case of the woman's leg, literally tarting. But anyway, um, right, code, junk, code junk then by analogy is anything you stick into your code that reduces uh, the information density of what you are seeing. Well, I should have just said that and been done, but <laughs> I'm incapable of it. So, uh, can we get the VA to just like condense that entire thing? <laughs> <laughs> just, just take that whole section and play it at like hamster speed. <laughs> so, <it's> just, <laughs> <laughs> I would have just said the last sentence first, but I didn't know it until I'd actually walked through the story. That's how my brain works. Sorry. <laughs> so, code awesome. so code jump. So code jump. Go ahead, Abby. I said, what's your favorite code junk? Who? Everyone? <laughs> sure. Anyone. But not me. Are there recyclables in, in code junk? What's that? Are there recyclables in code, code junk? Recyclables? Yeah. No. 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 
there are things you should throw away. <laughs> so yeah. You should throw away trailing white space. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like everything you said, I was just like, yes. <laughs> so I actually had one uh, at Nordic Ruby that I didn't include afterwards. And um, that's explicit returns. Yes. <laughs> so, no, it turns out that this is a religious issue. It turns out people love it, it some people hate it. Yeah. No, but the I other side's wrong. Well, yeah. This is right. not <laughs> Java. <laughs> so, so I took it out because that's not the point. I don't want to get into religion. I just wanted to talk about things that are definitely junk. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay. So, the explicit returns thing. I, w- I want to talk about that for a few moments. Yeah, because, I think we should because, because the because, other side's wrong. Yeah, well, we're talking about refactoring. And uh, the reason, the, the number one reason why I do not like explicit returns um, is that they offend my eyes. It's all this explicit code. No, it's like, um, no the, um, I, I think that a guard statement at the beginning of a method that you know has like return yeah. you know f- you know return nil unless user dot name or something or you know, just something. return unless which is the same thing right yeah, but the, same, the purpose is different it's it's not yeah. about you know uh, uh, anyway yeah yeah right so but so that is a separate case and i think that that's fine the thing that once you get into the body of the method explicit returns do nothing for you except prevent you from effectively refactoring the code in certain ways Right, because if you move it, then you're moving the return with it, which means you're actually moving, like, effectively a jump, right? So it's well, yeah, not and okay. you, Right, and if you copy that thing out and put it in the middle of some other method or, or extract that thing into a different method, it's, it's not going to be able to return out of the middle of your other method, so you have to, you have to change around how, how the code is structured. So, right. right, and one of the fundamental rules of, of refactoring legacy code is you want to be you know you want to be able to m- make changes with the smallest change possible like you want to be able to as much as possible lift code from one place to another and you know cuz one of the objections that that people might come up with was is you know well go through and 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 change all those returns but but um you know where where refactoring efforts tend to go south is it's in the one the one more change you know it's it's you move some code and then you realize you need one more change and then you need one more change and then you need one more change and pretty soon the, the project's on the floor nothing works and you you wind up blowing away your branch and, uh, and you know throwing away your work right by definition that's no longer a refactoring either right exactly and it's also just difficult when you're reasoning about the method if the return sometimes is buried in the middle you know it's it's very difficult to reason about sometimes so. yes yeah I, surprise return i think i'm gonna alias return to like f or something and then it'll be like f something anyway we've settled it we're right the other side's wrong as well if you return out of the middle of the method then the first half of the method was probably not well composed with the second half of the method the first half was doing something to get ready for the second half of the method um which means you you've got two methods there yeah yep yep all right so katrina tell us about other things about refactoring what else what else about refactoring do we need to know 
So uh, something that I didn't cover in my talk is how do you get started? I think that's a really interesting topic. Um, a lot of do people you, do, are... Do you mean trying refactoring at all or on a particular case? Like when you have this code base that is a big ball of mud, how do you approach it? Ah. Like you know that there's, you know, there are a thousand kilometers to go until this thing is beautiful, but what's, the, what's that first step? Um, and I obviously don't have a whole bunch of answers. My, my, my favorite way of getting started is just go pick something easy, really, really tiny and really, really easy. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's the, true. So, Start so, the test infection small. Yeah. Now, now what, what do you, what do you gain out of starting something small? Confidence. You you start learning about the code just a little bit. And every That's, time you refactor something, you, you've understood something more. It's kind of like a mathematical proof where, where you know, at, at, for every step of a proof, you have to build up that understanding. And, and the whole proof won't fit in your head unless until you've built up every single step of it. And the, a refactoring will help you understand the code in, in kind of the same way. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too, is understanding. And we talked about this last week with the, uh, the Goose episode, but you, you don't change the error message of a test just because you can or because you're being tedious or whatever. It's to prove that you understand why it's failing. Right. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, but it, it, it's all about that feedback and communication again, too, and. And, you know, like James said, you know, you, you change the messages because uh, it helps you understand the code. It helps you understand the test and stuff rather than, uh, uh, you know, the other way around. But anyway, you know, just changing it just because you want to change it. Plus, a lot of it is, um, you know, if you start with one thing, sometimes, you know, it's it's a bunch of things tied together and you can't really see the forest for the trees or whatever. And, and you don't really know where things belong. But if you just start somewhere and you do a little something, like Katrina's example, she uses a method object in the refactoring. And I remember back when we were talking to Kent Beck about small talk best practice patterns, he talked about how one of the great things about method object is it always seems a little weird when you start doing it. But usually you find what it's giving you is that other place you need to hang methods. You know? mm -hmm. And once you've got it out there, then it's like, oh, yeah, there's this thing, and that goes over here, you know, and mm -hmm. it, it gets you started, right? Uh, uh, now, okay, so, so you start off by taking these baby steps, you know, you know whittling away at little pieces. Uh, at, you know, maybe you're, you know, maybe it's the equivalent of like polishing the chrome on the bumper. What, how can you tell you've reached the point where you're ready to actually open the hood and start working on the engine? Well, usually you see something, you, you recognize a pattern that's almost there, or you see that you have, um, you're, you're, you recognize an abstraction that's your, that you're missing, and then you can start building up that abstraction um, separately, maybe, and slipping it into the code um, in more and more places. But you, it's usually this, this moment that you start, you start recognizing things. You don't have to go looking for, uh, sort of desperately searching for a refactoring. You just start with the, the obvious sort of low-hanging fruit, and, and larger refactorings will present themselves. I, okay, so I, I, I loved what you just said there about um, identifying a missing abstraction. And, and that, I think that's a... That's a piece of refactoring that is at a higher level than 
uh, you know, what, what most of the refactoring books talk about. The, Good so, point. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so is there more to say about that or is there, or is it just let that stand? <laughs> that, I, so, I mean, I, I mean, so we talk about refactoring as the process of improving the design of existing software. I think identifying abstractions is a huge part of of any um, any refactoring, but it it can. I mean, there there are differences in degrees. Like sometimes you'll just have all these little you know, primitives or this hash that you're kind of passing around and you realize that what you really want is this object that you can put behavior into. Um, but it doesn't have to be a very big object. It might just have two or three methods. And other times it's this sort of core idea in your application that, that you've been, um, I don't know, glossing over or ignoring or that you've spread out in a lot of places. I just had somebody ask me this last night. Um, you know, they were asking me, what do I, how do I recognize the abstraction to move towards, you know, looking at a piece of legacy code, how do I see the, the, the code that could be there? Um, and it's a tough question for me. I mean, the best that I could come up with was, was if you read more of the, the refactoring literature, um, you know, things like the, the refactoring Ruby book, um, or, uh, even like working effectively with legacy code, um, you, can at least start to get an, uh, uh, like a sort of a, a list in the back of your mind of the kind of transformations that are possible. And, and that can help a little bit in seeing what, what could be. Um, but that was the only a answer that I could come up with. So I, I have an answer there. And mine would be that as you improve the code and you make it more well-factored, it tends that you're passing more objects around and I often find that that's what tips me off, that it's like, oh, I pass this object in here and I pass this object in here. And basically that's this other concept that's, that's pretty much the same thing. Notice how I'm calling the same methods on it all the time or whatever. Sometimes I can notice it in my test because I build some double to shove in there, right? And that, that double, because I'm passing that around in a couple different places, it tips me off that there's there's another concept there, right? That's a really good point. Uh, having to build up a bunch of, like having a huge amount of setup code in your tests is usually um, a sign that you, you've kind of uh, taken too big of a bite, that you're trying to test um, too large of an abstraction at once. So one, one other thing that uh, is sort of related to what we're talking about here is we're, we're talking about refactoring our code, but in a lot of cases, what I wind up getting to is, you know, I'll have a reasonably well-factored application and, you know, a set of functionality in there, but my tests are the things that kind of get out of control. Is, is there a good way of refactoring your tests so that they behave the way that you want them to, take out the cruft, things like that? Time and patience, my friend. Time and patience. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you identify the areas that you need to change, fix, or whatever? Well, if your tests are kind of boring to read because they keep repeating themselves or if there's a lot of um, setup uh, or just a lot of kind of boilerplate, and you're saying, you know, um, comparing sort of the same, same sets of values over and over again. Um, I don't know. I use RSpec a lot. Uh, I really like how it's possible to build up um, these sort of nested contexts where you slowly build up more and more complex um, structures, but it's still really easy to follow. 
I don't know if that helped at all. I mean, it helps some. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, a lot of the times you'll, you'll make changes to the code and it'll break some of the tests and then you have to go, you know, you wind up refactoring it because you, you either um, understand the problem better or, you know, some, some requirement has changed and you didn't um, account for it in, in everywhere in your tests. But at the right, same or, time, oh, go ahead. No, or the tests are, are just kind of echoing the implementation and <laughs> they're going to break no matter how you change the code. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so people know the red green refactor cycle, right? That's They that's know it. Safe. A lot of people don't do it. A lot of people it's red green. What's the next feature? <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so, we, so we move from red green next feature to red green refactor. There, I, I saw another chart on a wall in an office that said red, green, refactor, refactor tests. I think the RSpec book actually says that the, the refactor step includes both your code and the tests. Yeah, I believe it should include the tests too. Yeah. There, yeah. there was a big eye-opener for me. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago that, you know, sometimes you have this test that's got all this setup, 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 right? You've got 20 lines of stubs and mocks, and it becomes really hard to figure out my goodness, you're you're like engineering this whole system. Why are we doing all this work to the setup? And uh, somebody pointed out to me, they, they walked me through all the mocks and stubs, and then they said they pointed at the code and said, that's duplication. You're actually duplicating all the setup that this method has. So start extracting. And, and it was really hard to figure out the first time. And it, it's still not easy, but it's getting easier. The more I see it, the more I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to I need to make all of this setup go away and test this in isolation. Right. Right. That makes sense. So it's an indication that you have too much glommed onto a single uh, method or object. Uh-huh. Right. Or too many dependencies that it's, you know, pulling from that are that are too magic because you're having to mock them all out, you know, or whatever. Right. So one other thing that, that really struck me in the talk was that uh, a lot of the refactorings, if we go back to the code junk, a lot of it was just about, you know, making it easier to read. And, Absolutely. And, and it, it really struck me. I mean, a lot of times we, we talk about refactoring, you know, where we're trying to optimize it for performance or, uh, where where we're refactoring it because, you know, it doesn't quite fit our style or doesn't fit the style guide that we have for our code for that project. And, you know, I thought it was really interesting where it was, you know, look, you know, refactor it so that you can, you know, really bring the meaning to the forefront. Well, it's going to save you a bunch of time next time you have to go in there and understand what's going on. Yep. Yeah, I hate to go back to it again, but uh, it's, it was really small time best practice patterns that drilled it into my head when in the introduction it talks about how code's number one purpose is to communicate with the reader, you know, and everything else comes after that. You know, yeah, it should do its job, it should be performant, whatever, but the number one thing that it should do is communicate with the reader. That's why we have code, right? We read it, we change it, we... Yeah, yeah. otherwise... Otherwise, we would program in machine code. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, K- Katrina, I got a, I have a, a, a bit of a background question for you. So I, I noticed <laughs> in your talk that you um, you pronounced call a method, send a message, and which which. Uh, which yeah. is the grammatically yeah. correct pronunciation. Right. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, James. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, so I mean, I did a whole like talk at Steel City that that was the entire talk. 
was, you know, it, it's not calling a method, it's sending a message. And uh, so I, I'm curious a little bit about where you got your OOP skills. Did, I mean, did you, did you spend time doing small talk or, you know, where, where did you grow up in all of your OOP programming? Um, yeah, I wish I spent a lot of time doing small talk. I'm actually a biologist by trade, geneticist. Oh, cool. Um, so I, I didn't do any programming until um, I kind of just fell backwards into it and couldn't get back out. Um, I, I, read, I read a lot, and there's something that struck me about how the program is, the, the, the real program is when it's alive. It's when it's sending messages. That's, that's your application. Um, the, the thing that you type is sort of this dead construct. And this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to, to debug sometimes is because the, there's this sort of dissonance. There's this cognitive sort of um, gap between the application as it's running, as it's alive and breathing, and the code that you've written. And mm -hmm. sending messages is what the application does to me in my mind. So it's like real cells sending real messages to... <laughs> right. Which is the goal of object-oriented programming, right? Was <laughs> cells sending messages. Yeah. Uh, there you go. You heard it from the biologist. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> so one other thing that I wanted to talk about that really struck me was um, you were talking about... Uh, well, it was when you were refactoring that building that file name and you pointed out that all of the like a lot of the lines were, you know, file name uh, and then the chevron to, you know, stick something else on the end to a pencil. Yeah, trip. that's one of the kick ass parts of the video. And, isn't it? Yeah, it was it was really good and it was super easy to follow. But the thing that really struck me was that, you know, you know, you immediately pointed out the things that were not the same as the rest of the method. And, you know, it really struck me that there, there is kind of a, a shape to the code there. There are different sections to each, you know, way of solving the problem. And, uh, you know, just it just totally jumped out at me. I still have this, you know, this slide that you had in your deck, you know, that, that keeps coming to mind. And it's literally just this rectangle with nothing in it and nothing around it. And you're saying this section of the code right here is the part that's a little bit different from everything else where it's not just jamming something onto the end of that file name. And, you know, and you're like, so this is a good candidate for, um, I, I think you extracted a method there or something, but, um, you know, for me, it just really, it, I, I don't know why, but it was so visually um, compelling to me to just look at it and go, okay, so there, there is a shape here. There is a, a form to this code that, you know, if you really look at it, you can start to pick this apart without actually, reading the code. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. It's one of the heuristics that I use when trying to approach code that I don't really know. Because beautiful code is often very regular. It has, you know, it has has a rhythm to it and you can you can sort of follow it's not jarring. So one of the things that you can you can do is just look for the irregularities and try to remove them. Yeah. And I find that to be a very right brain explanation of a concept that I think of in left brain, which is the same level of abstraction, uh, right? That, that everything in the method should be at basically the same level of abstraction. Yes. So if, if you're seeing those different shapes, that's a hint that that's not happening, right? It's exactly. that, yeah, it's, it's that they're in different levels of abstraction. You, in the video, Katrina, you liken that to some 
child's game, I think. And I, I didn't get the reference. Uh, so I don't know if it's common in the States. In Norway, they have uh, a game called Five Differences. It's actually um, directly translated as Find Five Errors. And it's often like a cartoon drawing. And they'll have two versions yeah. of that cartoon drawing next to each other. And you have to find the, you know, the, where the hat is a little bit bigger and there are two flowers instead of three and things like that. Okay, I think Americans know that from reading the Highlight magazine. That's right. Yeah. That's what I was yeah. going to say. In the dentist's office. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Norwegians know this from reading um, Donald Duck cartoons when they're small. Okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah. But yeah, uh, that, it's definitely so, spot the differences. Yeah. So, so, so there, there's an analog to what you guys are talking about in actual architecture of buildings. And that's uh, you know, where you have a repeating motif. And, and a lot of architecture is really about figuring out what kind of repetition you want to put in place. So you have a colonnade and you say, okay, I'm going to put a column every four feet. And then every eight columns, I'm going to, I'm going to put an archway. And, and you can, you know, build, you can just, you know, and, and you keep doing this and repeating things. And eventually you get the Colosseum in Rome where it has a whole bunch of repeating elements and, and the regularity of the small uh, uh, repetitions gets uh, sort of uh, bundled up into the larger scale. Mm -hmm. right. and, so you have and, the small abstractions and the larger abstractions. Yeah. So you say, oh, you say, oh, that's, you know, three stories tall because you can, you can find out where the stories are if you didn't have, uh, it, you know, some regularity around how you move from one floor to another, you wouldn't be able to see that. It would be, all be a big mess. So, I'd, so I'd, I think that the, I loved what you did in that refactoring where you took things that were at a couple different levels of abstraction and you showed how you could tell they were at different levels because they just didn't look the same. Yeah, it was awesome. I agree. If you've seen Harry Potter, then you know that my code looks like the burrow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, we need to get to the picks soon. Are there any other uh, aspects of this that we want to talk about before we wrap this up? I, I, I have a I have a question again on the therapeutic side. I, I think we've we've seen okay great you know we can we can do this therapeutic process. We have some messy code. We go through it. We you know we feel better at the end. Are the, what are the other things that you do, Katrina, to deal with uh, sort of the uh, you know the the other challenges in code and and what so basically like what are your other therapeutic tricks for for dealing with problem code? Beside, you know, beyond refactoring. So beyond refactoring, my other trick is step away from the computer. Um, go for a walk. Whoa, 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 what? <laughs> <laughs> Define away from the computer. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really, really challenging. It's a but lot harder far than enough? <laughs> No, David, keep going. Put your hands up and step away from the computer. How about now? <laughs> it's hard though right it is hard like i get that bit in my teeth and i can't let it go you know it's uh, i'm gonna find this bug but she's right like i can either sit there and plow straight through for two hours and get it or i can leave for 10 minutes i'll be out there talking to my wife and the answer will pop into my head you know yeah. that's actually a brain rule um, the, the worst thing you can do for your brain is to sit in a chair for hours on end. And if you, you saying something, uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> we're all a little slow, but we all got it. <laughs> I'm done. 
<laughs> no, but seriously, um, if you want to add thirty, literally like thirty points to your IQ or okay to your executive function, um, get physical exercise. Get get your you know get some cardio moving. And so um, okay, now, okay, I feel, so, now I feel awkward uh, yeah, because yeah, of yeah, David, comment, David that, that, that's a great point. But 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 I, I you know I think the change in perspective. Mm-hmm. Is that what you were talking about, Katrina? No. Or actually, or oh, Katrina, okay. Katrina, were you talking about changing your perspective, or were you just like, you know, go go get some air and 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 wake your body up? I was I was not talking about physical ed- uh, exercise. I was talking about changing perspective. But I do see how a little bit of extra oxygenation to your brain could help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it really does help just to get away from it. It's funny how how freeing it turns out to be for your head, you know, and you, it's not, it, it, what it finally made me good at doing it is realizing it's not giving up because my brain's going to sit there and chew at it anyway, you yeah. know, so it's, I, I'll get it later, you know. Well, it, it, I think it's pretty, you know, we just, you know, everyone on the planet except me just watched the Olympics a couple weeks ago and the, I have a tradition of not watching them, but the, uh, <laughs> That's a the, pretty easy tradition to follow, I think. Yeah, <laughs> a whole lot less yeah. effort. Yeah, uh, but the, you know, if you watch these top performing athletes, if they if they give something a shot and they don't make it, they they don't like you know they jump right back out of it. You know, they'll like take a moment and catch their breath, mm-hmm. and then try again in a few minutes. Yeah. So so I, th- I think that that's a that's same thing when you're banging your head against the keyboard and can't figure it out. You know, taking a break. Giving, you know, going and playing a, a, you know, a game of solitaire for five minutes or, or reading XKCD or something like that. Just, you know, get your brain uh, out of that rut so that you can come back fresh. It's a big help. So there is kind of a difference uh, between this type of intense mental uh, creative uh, work and the, the purely physical or not purely physical, I guess, but um the achievements that athletes um, have in the, the, the type of automation. So we need to do, to, to program and, and do the, these very intense sort of um, structured problem solving tasks. We, we need working memory, but working memory is not as necessary in these physical tasks. What you need to have is, is the ability to, have internalized the movements that you need and then get your brain out of the way. Mm-hmm. If that made it, any sense. It, 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 it does to me. I, 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 the, the second part there though, getting your brain out of the way is that is like so huge. I mean, I've been, I've been doing yoga for, you know, 25 or so years and it, you know, I figured out pretty quickly in my yoga career that it's mostly about what's going on inside my brain. It's not really as much about what's going on in my body. And, uh, and, and if you talk to the top performing athletes, it's all about getting your head in the game. It's, it's not about how, you know, the difference between, you know, winning and losing an Olympic swim meet isn't so much about the, the state that their body is in. It's about the state that their brain is in and, and how focused they are on the task and how well they can apply themselves. Right. And to give an analogy that's not uh, athletes, I love to go watch uh, like Philharmonic symphonies and stuff. Oh, and, yeah. And when they bring in a guest artist, I love the artists that um, are totally into the music so much that they're swaying and their their heads rolling back and forth. And it's just like 
you can tell that the music is just like all in them, you know, and that they're applying every sense they have to it, you know, and that, and that's how, how they're just, you know, putting their self in that frame of mind. It's really cool. Yep. All right. Well, let's, let's get to the picks. Um, Avdi, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, so for a programming related pick, uh, I'm going to go with the book. X-Unit Test Patterns by Gerard uh, Mazaros. <clears throat> this book is about a, about a foot thick, and I cannot claim to have read all or even most of it, um, but I've been finding that it's, it's a useful reference to have around um, just because it's, it's the, the most complete attempt I've found to build kind of a, a full vocabulary uh, around unit testing, uh, which means that when I'm having when I'm uh, working with people and, and they ask, well, so what's the difference between an integration test and a functional test or something like that? I can look it up in X unit test patterns and I can say, well, X unit test pattern says this. Um, and uh, it's just, um, you know, and then it also has just a lot of, a lot of definitions of both common patterns in testing and also common anti-patterns in testing and how to address them with better patterns. So pretty cool book. Um, I'm looking forward to to digging into it more um, over probably the course of the next several years. <laughs> um, for a um, for a non-programming pick, I'm going to pick the um, the the Maytai uh, child carrier. Uh, I don't even know what the term is. Anyway, it's it's one of these. There are many many different technologies for strapping a newborn or an infant uh, to one's body. Uh, you know, you have you have snugglies and you have Moby wraps and you have your your fancy nylon contraptions and uh, and their slings. Um, I've been been using a uh, a Maytai, which I'm gonna have to look up the, the spelling of that. And it's been one of the more comfortable ones I've tried, and it's it's been pretty surefire for uh, for putting the newborn to sleep. So I've been pretty happy with it. So for the parents out there, there you go. Awesome, um, David. What are your picks? So I have this time-honored tradition of uh, helping those of you who listen to the show while commuting uh, get 10 further miles down the road during my picks. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's actually kind of bugging me how long I take for picks. And Katrina said that she has four picks today. So I'm going to, in a surprise, stunning mood move, I'm going to yield uh, my pick time to Katrina. And I'm done. Okay, Katrina, what are your picks? You're supposed to say that Cher recognizes Katrina. <laughs> All right, my first pick is Z, or Z, the letter Z. Uh, it's a shell script that helps you navigate your file system by frequency and recency. So it's kind of like the Command-T plugin for Vim or TextMate, except you don't get fuzzy searches. It's really, really helpful. Let me paste that in. Uh, when you said the le- when you said the letter Z, I was thinking, oh, we're back to Sesame Street. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this episode has been brought to you by. <laughs> um, my second pick: uh, Practical Object Oriented Design in Ruby by Sandy Metz. It is about to be released. Like in the next couple of weeks, it should be out, and you absolutely, absolutely should go read it. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a little little secret preview here. We're going to have a few copies of it on hand at Gogoruko. Awesome. Um, I don't have any tickets, so don't ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, my third pick, uh, also programming related, is another book called The Little Schemer by Daniel Friedman and Matthias Felison. Oh, yeah. It's such a good little book. Like, if, if you're having trouble grokking uh, recursion, this is the book you need to read. And you need to read it with a pen and paper. Like, don't just read through it. Do all the, answer all the little questions. It's beautiful. Um, and my fourth pick is uh, some shameless, uh, what's it called? Shameless. Uh, Self-promotion. Uh, Self-promotion, yes. So I, uh, I work at this product development company in Oslo, and they've been together for like 17 years, and they've been doing wild and crazy and wonderful things. Um, a few years back, back when Rails was like 0.8, so sometime during beta, they started writing um, web applications in Ruby. And by the time I joined, they were seriously feeling the pain of gargantuan, monolithic, tangled Rails applications. So ever since I started, we've been experimenting with uh, writing sort of more modular, uh, smaller services, and then building applications on top of that. And in the past week or so, we've been started working on open sourcing some of our um, modules. Um, and so pebblestack.org, uh, which by the time this show goes live, should have something, um, something up and open sourced. Awesome. Sweet. James, what are your picks? Well, since we've uh, mentioned Sandy Metz a couple of times, I'll, I'll start with a pick from her. She did a lunch and learn at uh, hash rocket a little while ago. And um, they just put the video up and uh, it's a discussion about, um, the different kinds of tests, what you test, um, where you do that, you know, where you uh, do the mock dependency injection, all of that is really good and, and bundled up in like a 30 minute package. So uh, it's a great little talk and, and everybody should go see that. Uh, and then for a non-code pick this time, I've been reading The Rational Optimist, which is a, a pretty interesting book. Um, you know, a, a lot of media and stuff would, would have us think things are always, you know, getting worse all the time and stuff like that. Uh, but it's pretty pretty easily to prove that, uh, that actually things are steadily getting better and better. Um, and this is a book about, uh, you know, uh, well, first proving that and then to uh, why is that happening? Uh, so it's, it's a good book and kind of a good, you know, counter some of the you know negativity that's out there all the time which i'm always for so those are my picks awesome josh what are your picks okay i got uh i'm i have like a huge list of picks that i've i've accumulated over the last couple weeks so i'm gonna uh, just select a couple of the good ones here so my first one is google web fonts i i was putting together a page that i wanted to look really great you know have a lot of good visual design appeal and the designer i was working with is like hey let's use a web font and i'm like oh that's going to take too long and then i took a look at google web fonts and realized this isn't going to take too long and we tried it and it took me literally about four or five minutes to completely change how awesome my page looked and so i if you're so if you're doing anything with uh, design i think that it's really time to start looking at uh using web fonts google has a bunch of really nice solid free fonts that you can use uh, and and there's there's some other companies uh that are uh doing commercial licensing of web fonts uh typekit 
uh, is a good one, but um, I I didn't actually get a chance to play with Typekit, uh, so I'm just going to pick Google Web Fonts, and uh, and that's that. Um, the the next pick that I have is a set of uh, math videos from uh, I think it's pronounced Vihart, and she does just an amazing job of making math uh, really interesting and aesthetically appealing. And I watched one of her videos about uh, parabolas, and it was just like this this you know, beautiful poem about mathematics. So if, if you have any appreciation for math, uh, these are really fun videos to watch. Um, and then the last thing is an iPhone app that uh, is called Chirp. And there, uh, so people, I, th I think a lot of people were uh, using the Bump application a while back where you could exchange business cards just by uh, like fist bumping when you're both holding your phones and the fist bump was a handshake to it. so chirp is like that except that the handshake is an audible bird chirp so you hear this little bloop, bloop. and the great thing about it is that it's not just one to one it's one to many so if you're standing around with a bunch of friends you just take a photo of everybody uh you know doing a backflip all at the same time you can just you know everybody pulls out their phone and you use chirp and you send out the audible tone, everybody standing in a, few, in a few feet of you, their chirp application hears it, and then you get the, the picture transferred from your phone to all of their phones at the same time directly through the server. So, so it happens actually, every, time, every time James laughs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, the, the, yeah the, the image goes directly from his brain to the server and onto your, <laughs> onto your phone. <laughs> Uh, you no, know, and I, th I think they're going to be expanding it to be able to handle more types of data that they that they uh, can handle. But uh, I, f I found it pretty handy. I was you know like hanging out with my family and taking pictures of the kids running around, and it was much easier to do that than to try and figure out some other way of sharing. So it's, it's uh, worth checking out. Okay, so that's it for my picks. All right. So can uh, I can I tag a, a quick pick onto there? Sure. Yeah. Um. Because uh, Josh, you reminded me of something. <laughs> you, you reminded me of something. Um, uh, there's this site called FontSquirrel, FontSquirrel.com. Uh, they've basically they basically just list uh, many many uh, freely available fonts, and they um, and you can go to any you know this, it's Google Fonts and, and other freely available web fonts, and you can go to any of them, and they will give you exactly the code you need to drop into your application to uh, to to source those fonts. Um, with like you know, it's just com a complete no-brainer, uh, which I've I've found them really handy. All right. Oh, I'll check that out. All right. So um, my picks. The first pick. I, I tend to avoid um, political or religious type things um, on the podcast, but I, I had kind of a major personal breakthrough, and it was it was due to a podcast, and and this is very um, very religious. Uh, Thing, but for, for me, it, it was a huge breakthrough. I was listening to this podcast. It's um, by my friend Cliff Ravenscraft. Um, it's called Encouraging Others Through Christ is his podcast. And uh, he interviewed another um, preacher named Steve Brown. And uh, they, they talked about a whole bunch of stuff. I'm not going to go into all of the major things, but um, if you if you are religious and you're looking for um, just uh, especially Christian and you're, you're looking for um, kind of that something that will 
um, help your connection to God, then, then I highly recommend you go check it out. You can listen to the episode at gspn.tv slash three free sins. And it's the word three, not the number three. Um, but anyway, that's one pick. I just, I just really had this, this personal, uh, thing. And anyway, it, it really helped me kind of, uh, come to terms with some things that I was dealing with. So, um, I, I just wanted to recommend and pick that. The other one that I want to pick is, um, it's, it's a book by Chris Gillibo. Um, it's called the $100 startup, um, which, which is kind of an interesting book for kind of bootstrapping your own little business. Um, he's got a, a, another book or two out there. I don't remember what they're called, but this one's just a really interesting take on, um, how to, how to build products and how to, um, start a, a small business. So, um, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you can go pick the book up on Amazon. It's, it's pretty interesting. So, um, anyway, those are my picks and, uh, we'll, we'll wrap that up. Um, if you are interested in, uh, hearing some interesting conversations that we're having, I think we had a whole thread on like parentheses and stuff on, on the Ruby par or Ruby rogues parlay list. Um, code junk. Yeah. um it it was really interesting but but yeah it it really did kind of fall in line with that but anyway we've got all kinds of interesting stuff that we're talking about on there so if you want to sign up go to rubyrogues.com and and sign up it's over in the sidebar and uh our next um book club book is um service oriented design with rails something like that by paul dix I'll put a link in the show notes and uh, you should be able to pick that up as well. Um, is Are there any other announcements that we want to put out there before we wrap this up? Can we just say thank you to Katrina for the video and coming on the show? Yeah. No, we can't. <laughs> okay, never mind then. <laughs> no, thank you, Katrina. It really was good. And then honestly, the video, we'll put a link to the show notes to that as well. Um, I, I watched the Cascadia Ruby conference version and yeah, it was just excellent. So. Yeah, Katrina, do you have any uh, conferences scheduled coming up? Yes, I do. I'll be speaking at Frozen Rails uh, in at the end of September, and our camp in Belgium uh, in October, and then um, there's one more, but it hasn't been announced yet in November. Ah, okay. Sweet. Awesome. All right. Well, um, we'll wrap this up then. We will be back next week. <laughs>